Our scripture reading for this Welcome Back Sunday comes to us from Matthew chapter 18. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of the other two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church and if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosened in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This passage is a favorite for pastors. If I were to lead a Bible study that was a total flop and only one of you came, I would surely begin by saying, well, where two or three are gathered, Jesus is present. But if we put it in the context of this passage, we realize that it means more than just, if two or three are there, Jesus shows up. We use it in a cavalier way as though if I were to begin a text chain with one or two of you, Jesus' name would pop up as an additional person. Jesus would join the conversation. But this passage comes in the context of a breakdown in human relationships, in the context of if a member of the community sins against you. This is part of a teaching moment that Jesus is giving his followers. As you form this new church, this is how I want you to function. And when something goes awry, as it inevitably does in human relationships, this is what I want you to do about it. First, don't go gossip, don't triangulate, don't bring in a third party, don't slander. No, go to that person, speak face to face. Go to them, try to win them back. Try to create restoration in your relationship. If that doesn't work, bring in another person as a witness. Amy Levine, who wrote the commentary, The Jewish Annotated New Testament, helping modern Christian readers understand the Jewish context of the Gospels, explains that this is in response to what would have happened under Deuteronomy, where it explained what to do with a person who wouldn't be part of the community. So don't just kick them out. You don't just get to stone them. You try to win them back. You try then to bring in a mediator, bring in a neutral third party to help you. If the church even can't help this person come to reconciliation, only then you set them temporarily outside the community, Jesus says, as a Gentile or a tax collector, you have to remember how much Jesus loved going after the Gentiles and the tax collectors. Jesus would say, those are my favorite people to hang out with. And if you can't win them back, surely I will still be reaching out to them, trying, starting from square one, trying to bring them into beloved community. So this passage is much more complex than it originally appears. Jesus shows up 
in a troubled and fractured community to work within the rifts and the hurts and the gaps whenever we gather in Jesus' name and there has been a restoration, a return to community, we can point to that transformation and say, aha, Jesus was there. Jesus helped us restore ourselves to one another. So this morning, Jake and I wanted to do a dialogue sermon, partly to model this relational aspect, and also to preach to the choir, which we love to do. Welcome back, choir. <laughs> and to tell all of you who came this morning and who are in the room how important it is to come and be together in the room. I have to pause and also say to those of you who cannot be in the room, we know that you are here with us in spirit, and this is not in any way meant as a judgment against you. We know there are insurmountable obstacles for some of you, geography or illness, and when you cannot come here, we will come to you virtually with this worship service, and we will continue to try to come to you throughout the week, bringing you the faith and the fellowship. So this is not for those of you who can't come, but this is for those of you who wake up some mornings and your bed is warm, and your friends are gathering for brunch, and there are many other things that you might love to do. This is a reminder for you to come in person. And the reason it's so important is that you may be the reason that Jesus appears in our midst. Jesus might show up for us because you came, because you were the person sitting there in the pew noticing the person beside you needed extra love and care. You might be the person who inspires a rift to be healed. You might be the one someone else needs. In your showing up, you are just as critical to this gathering as any of the worship leaders you see up here. Your presence is needed. When you come, you make it possible for Jesus to be in our midst. Now, this might not be evident to all of you right away, but it is a little bit unusual for one church to have two millennial clergy involved in worship. Statistically speaking, it is highly unusual. Vanessa and I are both known as what are called millennials. Have any of you heard of us? Okay, good. I'm considered what's called a peak millennial, born in 1988. I hear it was a very, very good year for everyone except for Michael Dukakis, but <laughs> but meaning that my experience as a millennial is considered kind of archetypical of what millennials should be and do, sort of appearing in the middle of the generational range. According to Indeed that studies and helps with online hiring for companies, Millennials were born into a technological world and came of age in a new millennia. This characteristic shows that we are now people who usually enjoy active listening, collaboration, and considering all points of view. Millennials also seem to prefer working across many functions, offering creative solutions, and moving away from boundaries of professional status and level. Additionally, this generation seems to believe that Approaches such as these, collaborative approaches, are beneficial for the workplace, more than merely following orders passed down from the top of the professional hierarchy. We're also a generation that statistically highly values remote work, hybrid work schedules, and workplace flexibility. This is because we grew up with the technology needed 
to not work necessarily in person. It's hard for us to understand if we're getting all of our tasks done on our projects, why we would then also be required to sit in a cubicle under fluorescent lights and have a commute in traffic to do so. I spent my first seven years in my career in local congregations as a minister, uh, where you really actually are working all the time, seven days a week. But on the upside of that job, you do get a lot of sort of flexibility within that seven-day work schedule. Then I went two years ago to the Anti-Defamation League, which was a very international organization. So we had a very hybrid work schedule, working with people around the world from home. And three weeks ago, I started for the first time in a five days in office, 8.30 to 5 p.m. job. I've actually never worked on Friday afternoons because Friday was my clergy day off and ADL is, we had Sabbath afternoons on Friday for Shabbat. So this is my first time ever working till 5 p.m. on a Friday. Now I understand what all the traffic complaints were about. I started th three weeks ago as the new Associate Director of Alumni Engagement and Donor Relations at Yale Divinity School. And I love my new job. I love the place and the people. And I have to admit, as a millennial, I almost didn't take the position because of the in-person obligation. See, the president of Yale University coming out of the pandemic left it to each of the deans of the different professional schools to decide how their staff should be in office or hybrid or remote. Guess which is the only school where everyone is expected to be in person? <laughs> the Divinity School. Why? Why would the Divinity School be the one that would understand the need for everyone to come in person, no matter whether they're in the registrar's office or financial aid or in communications, which really could all happen technically from a task-based perspective at home, remotely? Three weeks in, I know I could not do my job if I weren't in person in the office. You see, it's not necessarily the tasks on the checklist that make it dynamic and interesting. It's the in-between. It's the conversation at the coffee machine. It's the casual conversation with a student or a professor walking to chapel or meeting people in the hallway. It's in the margins in the hallways where Jesus appears. So I resisted. I'm doing a millennial confession. I almost didn't take the job of a lifetime because of the full in-person component. And I'm so glad I did, and I'm learning as testimony why it's important that the Divinity School, a place that is training clergy, that trained Reverend Rose and others, is requiring in person because it matters. Because we are training people to live in community and foster community. It's in the in-between moments that the creativity, the innovation, the true community takes place. One of my favorite parts about working at Yale is all the other resources. Have any of you been to see any of the libraries over at Yale? There's the Beinecke, there's the Sterling Library. There's a current exhibit, and it's open to the public if you get a chance, um, at the Sterling Library, which is this cathedral-like building in the middle. You don't have to be Yale-affiliated to go, and it's called the First Folio. Shakespeare for all time. And they have on exhibit some of the oldest existent copies of Shakespeare's works. These date back to the 1600s. Fascinating exhibit. But what's fascinating about it isn't the words of Shakespeare. What the exhibit is highlighting is all the doodles 
all the writings over 400 years, people didn't realize these books would be on display when they were in their personal libraries, you know, back in the 1800s. But you can see the overlapping conversation of Edwardian, Victorian, Elizabethan, England in the margins. What people have written, crossed out, circled, highlighted. And the historicity, the study of the history, shows that it's the conversation in the margins, in the in-between, the sentences, the highlights. That's what created the history and the passion and the understanding of Shakespeare as we know Shakespeare today. Not the original print folio, it's the doodles over the history, the conversation, the dialogue in the margins and the writings where the story takes place. Community, church community, the Divinity School is the only school at Yale where all the staff are required to be in person every day of the week. And that's because we're training people to build true community where we find Jesus in the in-between and not just in the bold print. Jake didn't want to call me out, but I'm what's known as either an elder or a geriatric millennial. <laughs> which makes me older and wiser. So yes, community happens in the margins. Community happens when we show up. When we show up here, we acknowledge our humanity. We remember that God loves us so much that God took on flesh and blood coming to be with us in the form of Jesus of Nazareth. God showed up for us, as the message translation puts it, moved into the neighborhood. When we come together, we make space for our humanity to be the best that it can be. We make room for healing any rifts. If we only show up in online spaces, how much breakdown can there be? Jake is much too friendly and affable and agreeable to have had any workplace conflict, maybe ever, but certainly not in the last three weeks. But if there were any pinches, any miscommunications, surely the time he is spending getting to know his colleagues will smooth any of those interpersonal difficulties along the way. And for those of us in the room, as our town battles over things like redistricting or zoning, the love that we foster as we share meals around a table together, as we gather together for worship, help us to repair any bridges or divides, help us to understand one another and truly love one another. It is hard sometimes to exactly put a finger on why being in the room is so important, but my favorite of the still speaking devotionals that the United Church of Christ offers was one written by Quinn Caldwell, who talked about the importance of being in the room to sing together, and so I will close with this. He writes that there are 5,400 animal species that make complex, intentional, repeatable, and musical vocalizations. That is, there are about 5,400 species that sing. The majority live in the trees, a few live in the oceans, and a very few live underground, but there is one and only one singing species that lives on the ground, us. And he says, we are the only singing species with a precise and shared sense of rhythm which is what allows us to sing together. Two birds might sing the same song, but they cannot sing it together. He says another thing, if a room full of people sings at the same time, they start to breathe at the same time. Some studies suggest that if the drum beat or bass line is strong enough, their hearts will begin to beat at the same time as well. 
And if we're singing together, he writes, and breathing together, and our hearts are beating together, then it is like we are one body, and you know whose body that is. Friends, together we are the body of Christ, and Jesus has promised us, I am in the midst of you. Thanks be to God.